This is Ozarks at Large for Monday afternoon, December 6th, 2021. This is your public radio station, KUAF. You can listen to us anytime, anywhere with the KUAF app. Good afternoon. I'm Kyle Kellums. On this edition of our show, we check in with journalists from Arkansas COVID to learn more about where we were in November in Arkansas with regards to COVID-19. Governor Asa Hutchinson is making a call for a special session of the Arkansas Legislature official. The session will begin tomorrow at the state capitol at 10. The main objective is a tax cut that would lower the top tax rate from 5.9 percent to 4.9 percent over a four-year span. The proposal would also, among other actions, combine the low- and middle-income tax tables. Some legislators are supporting other measures, including a more restrictive abortion prohibition that would require two-thirds support in both chambers to be discussed during the special session. A new report shows hospitals affiliated with Protestant religious organizations in the South are restricting access to abortion. The report from the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia Law School finds hospitals in the South impose strict limits on the procedure, including in cases where patients face potentially life-threatening complications. The report's co-author, Liz Reiner-Platt, says the restrictions were also seen at secular and public hospitals throughout the region. You know, when we distributed a survey on hospital uh, reproductive health policies to medical providers, and then we did some follow-up interviews, we heard from quite a number of people uh, that the restrictions on abortion at secular, and, and most often the hospitals being mentioned were public hospitals, um, was every bit as restrictive or almost as restrictive as the policies at nearby Protestant facilities. Platt says some hospitals have ethics committees, which sometimes include religious leaders, focus solely on deciding whether or not to perform an abortion. She says patients who are denied abortions in hospital settings often don't have venues for legal recourse. The patient may not even know that they are not being offered a a course of treatment that might be offered in a different facility. Um, If they come in and they're Again, their water has broken at 16 weeks, and they're told, like, there's nothing we can do for you. I think there's not necessarily a reason not to take that at face value, unless they're told to go to another facility where an abortion might be available to them. Platt says some doctors report a fear of reprisal from the public or even litigation for carrying out abortions that aren't considered an emergency procedure. She says some public health care institutions also fear losing state funding as a result of providing the procedure. The Arkansas Department of Health reports just fewer than 1,200 new cases of COVID-19 diagnosed this weekend in the state, and 40 deaths from the virus have been added in the last 48 hours. More than 8,700 Arkansans have died from COVID-19. Hospitalizations in the state dropped by a net of one patient this weekend. Active cases rose by more than 400 to 7,555. Early voting for a special election for the Arkansas legislature begins tomorrow. State Senate Seat 7 vacated by Republican Lance Eads, will have primary party selections through early voting this week and primary election day proper on the 14th. There are four Republicans and two Democrats seeking the seat. Any runoff election for party nominations would be January 11th, with the general election between eventual nominees on February 8th. And the 2021 Arkansas Razorback football season will extend into the first hours of 2022. Arkansas will play in the New Year's Day Outback Bowl against Penn State. It's the Razorbacks' first ever trip to this particular bowl, and it will be the first ever matchup between the two schools on the football field. Arkansas ended the regular season 8-4. and four. Penn State was 7-5. and five.
This is Ozarks at Large. We have made it into December. It is time to check in with the ArkansasCOVID.com crew to find out what we experience in November, what we might experience in the near future. Rob Wells, Mary Hannigan, Rachel Sanchez-Smith are all with me via Zoom. Everybody, welcome. Thank Hi, you. Kyle. Hello. All right, Mary, let's start with you. We were, as we have for 20 or 21 months, we've been watching case numbers what did November give us? All right. So new COVID-19 cases in November were very similar to those in October. The month had more than 15,000 illnesses, down about 1,500 or 8% from October. New cases are continuing to follow that wave pattern that we began to see in September. However, these case numbers are still tripled the count that the state reported in April of May of, the, of this year, but these are the lowest since then. The highest one-day count of the month, 1,044, was on the 30th. I mean, one day does not a trend make, but still somewhat uh, concerning that it was the highest single-day total since late September. Right. And however, deaths in November significantly dropped and totaled just under 300, whereas they were nearly 700 in October. This also follows a pattern that experts told us they were expecting to see, the slow in deaths that was lagging behind the slow in new cases. Now, with the nearly 60% drop in deaths, it seems like the two are closer to alignment now. All right, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, as we saw that single one-day total of over 1,000 on the last day of November, the governor was also talking about an uptick in vaccinations. What did the month show us for people getting shots? Yeah, so we saw vaccinations rise at the highest rate since August, up about 11%. And as long as well as vaccinations, the governor and also state health officials like Secretary of Health, Dr. Romero, also prompted vaccines as of the utmost importance, especially with concern um, in regards to the Omicron variant, which the World Health Organization listed as a variant of concern just a few days ago on the 20th. Sixth, um, And the governor stated yesterday that there is not enough information to make definitive decisions or to make, you know, direct course of action about the Omicron variant. And for now, they're just looking at focusing on promoting vaccine uptake and looking forward as we gather more information about the Omicron variant. The main questions will be how contagious is it? How severe is subsequent disease? How effective is um the vaccine compared to this variant. And again, state and city health officials have all said the best way to protect the public is to get as many people vaccinated as possible and concur herd immunity as much. And Mary and Rachel, I'll open this to both of you. Two things struck me about the governor's uh, briefing on November 30th. One, when he was talking about the uptick in both hospitalizations and new cases for that last day of November, he offered two ways to look at it, saying, one, if you're optimistic, which I usually am, but then he used a word after that said, but if you're realistic, not pessimistic, but realistic, it might mean more. And then Dr. Jose Romero, who spoke later in the briefing, wasn't an alarmist, but certainly sounded very concerned. Absolutely. He provided a counter to the governor's um, optimistic point of view, saying, realistically, we're going to see ebbs and flows and hospitalization as, you know, the lagging indicator of what our cases are looking like, especially after holidays like Thanksgiving, where people are gathering in large groups. 
All right, Rob Wells, let me bring you in because what we usually do with these segments is talk about what we know in the past, and we it's hard to talk about the virus in the future. But we are going to talk about the future a little bit here, the future of ArkansasCOVID.com. Yeah, so ArkansasCOVID.com has had a wonderful run over 17 months, and it's going to uh, wind up on December 10th. Um, I'm leaving uh, the University of Arkansas for a new job at the uh, University of Maryland. And uh, I looked around to try to hand it off, hand the project off to someone else and just couldn't find that <clears throat> you know, sweet spot of uh, somebody who could do both journalism and data. You know? So you know, we've, we tried multiple avenues, tried to keep this going and, and it just it didn't work out. So you know, I never really envisioned Arkansas COVID to be a permanent project. Um, we, uh, you know, I planned to shut it down in August and then the Delta variant came along, you know, so, uh, timing is never great to do anything like this. And it's awkward at this point, you know, with Omicron, but, um, you know, it's the whole thing was never really structured to be permanent. You know, I did it as part of my faculty duties and, uh, never really had the funding for, for a permanent operation, but it was, um, it was just really neat to work with 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 Mary and Katie and and Rachel Sanchez Smith. You know, uh, during this time, we did some really important stories. I think uh, about the Hispanic community, uh, what was happening with COVID in the Marshallese community. Um, Mary, Katie, and Abby Zamardi did a really important story about um, COVID in the workplace and looked at the problems in the in the poultry industry. So you know. I'm just very grateful for the support we had over this, this period of time. The Walton Family Foundation funded us, Arkansas Community Foundation, uh, Society of Professional Journalists funded us. Nikita Reed at Arkansas Soul was instrumental in getting this website, you know, up and running and stable, you know. And uh, Larry Foley at the journalism department was very important. Uh, Jenny Pop at the Honors College and whole bunch of other folks, including Austin Wilkins, a data science student who helped us a critical thing, you know, adventures. So, um, you know, I'm just also very grateful for KUA for putting us on the air every month with these updates and, and supporting our work. So uh, here we go. We'll just go off for the next adventure, but, uh, um, you know, we'll be uh, wrapping up on December 10th. And I just really appreciate the community support. Mary and Rachel, um, your thoughts. I think when the three of us talked sometime in early, late summer, early fall, we also echoed those comments. We thought before Delta, things were going to shut down and, and it didn't. Over the course of the past year and a half, any final thoughts as, as ArkansasCOVID.com closes down? No, it's a little bittersweet for me. I was officially the first employee of Arkansas COVID. I started as an intern many months ago and only took a few months break for a separate internship. Um, in my time here, I have learned and grown so much as a journalist. Uh, the site, while it provided really important information for the public, also helped me to grow in areas that I wouldn't have been able to otherwise. So it was really special in the data form of things like Dr. Wells was mentioning, but also in the, I'm very proud of the outreach that I made to the other communities. And we provided information in three separate languages. So that's really awesome as well. Rachel? 
Absolutely. Similar sentiments. Arkansas COVID has been instrumental to my growth as a journalist, as a student, as a person. Um, I've been extremely grateful to have an editor that supports me um, to be able to translate things into several different languages, to make our stories accessible to communities that typically don't have their voices heard or expressed in such a manner. So, I mean, I want to take, thank Arkansas COVID for all of the help, but I also want to thank the community and our sources and everybody who's contributed because it's their voices and our communities past reflected in our work. And a salute to the originators of Arkansas COVID, which, you know, I think so many of us first discovered on Twitter uh, soon after the pandemic began. Yeah, Misty Orpin did a fantastic job starting this up. This was a project that she wanted to uh, break down the, the really complex uh, data release from the state health department so her father could understand it. And she came up with the basic concept and design and uh, grew this thing to, you know, it was, I think, 12,000 Twitter followers when we got it. We're up to 14 now. Um, but uh, she handed it over to us because of the complexity of, of running the site in in August. Um, and we just, you know, unleashed some some serious data journalism firepower on it with, with my students and uh, and took it and transformed it into a, uh, a semi-automated site that now updates in about 20 minutes a day, you know. But uh, but keeping that thing going is, man. When when something changes uh, in terms of a data release, it's that's a couple pots of coffee and a box of pop tarts to try to fix it. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, I imagine you know there would be those times when I think it would be a data dump or a cleanup where you, they would add several hundred cases or 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 alter the you know unfortunately the number of fatalities. And I can only imagine the work that meant. For your crew, and it's and this is commonplace in in other data uh, journalism operations. You know, uh, we've talked to colleagues around around the world, really, and they face the same problems in the Netherlands and you know, in Europe and Asia. You know, with uh, with data releases when they change formats, and you know, you have to deal with the government, and they're not exactly terribly welcoming to talk to you. Although I do have to say, the the Department of Health was was cooperative and. Um, you know, uh, uh, Jennifer Dillaha and, and uh, McMurrowville were really um, were responsive to us. And I was grateful to have, you know, people in, in government who actually took us seriously. All right. Well, Mary Hannigan, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Rob Wells, thank you very much. Um, Rob, I, I hate to say this, but go Terps and uh, <laughs> stay in touch. <laughs> yeah, they don't have a very good football team, but what can I say, man? <laughs> they have a good chess team. There you go. Thank you all very much. All right. Thanks a lot, Kyle. Thank you. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being, offering apartments to village homes, plus a daily calendar of activities and events. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. This is Ozarks at Large, and this is the Season of Giving Fundraising Week at KUAF, when we take just a few minutes to remind you of your very important role in keeping public radio on the air for you and listeners like you throughout the year. You can become a member of KUAF or perhaps give an end-of-year tax-deductible gift at supportkuaf.com. Our physical worlds have become smaller during this pandemic. We've spent more time alone or with a smaller circle of people. And you know how important it's been to have KUAF in your life. KUAF 
is your source for the daily information you need, information based in truth. And in fact, that's why you listen. KUAF and NPR dig deep into the biggest stories of our time. And we're your companions as you go about your day. Familiar, trusted voices always here for you. And your help is what makes this service exist, makes it possible. This week is KUAF's Season of Giving on-air fundraiser. We're raising funds that are necessary to keep the programming you and our listeners depend on. We hope you'll be a part of it. If you haven't already given and you're able, you can give online at supportkuaf.com. It's easy. It takes just a couple of minutes with your support. KUAF will continue to be here for you every day, keeping you up to date with trusted news and information and entertained with great music and conversation. Thank you for listening, and thank you for choosing KUAF. And again, during our Season of Giving fundraiser, we're offering a special CD as a thank you for your support. This year, we put together a collection of live performances of holiday songs from past live holiday Ozarks at Large shows that took place at the Fayetteville Public Library. This year's CD features holiday songs from the likes of Sons of Otis Malone and Shannon Wurst and Ed Carr. For a gift of $240 or just $20 a month, you can request a special KUAF Holiday 2021 CD. This is the only place you're going to be able to get this CD. It's a collection of local artists performing your favorite holiday songs, and you're not going to find it anywhere else. That's for a gift of $240 or more, or or if you set up a $20 a month sustaining gift. And of course, these CDs make great holiday gifts for loved ones who also love KUAF or a gift for yourself. You can make your gift now at supportkuaf.com, and thank you. For over a decade, KUAF's Giving Tree program has benefited dozens of nonprofits that need our help in all of our communities. But possibly more important than helping bring in donations to these groups, the Giving Tree has raised awareness of so many issues in our area that need our attention. In this season of giving, we're helping out two groups Peace at Home Family Shelter and the Magdalene Serenity House. We'll be hearing from both all throughout December and ways that you can help out. You can also go to our website, KUAF.com, click on the Giving Tree, and learn how you can directly benefit these groups. The Giving Tree and KUAF Public Radio, local matters. This is Ozarks at Large. Remnant stands of ancient Osage orange or bodark trees, once widespread in the Midwest and eastern United States, continue to grow in several places, including the Ozark Highlands. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, the trees produce a highly valued decay-resistant wood as well as large, strange green fruit that only extinct megafauna relished. Osage orange, a gnarly, brambly tree that sheds large, green, knobby fruit every autumn, appears to grow only in discreet wild places on the Arkansas Ozarks or on nurtured preserves like this one on Mount Sequoia Center in Fayetteville. Noted botanical author Stephen Foster hikes to the elder Osage orange tree and looks up. Maclura palmifera at uh, Mount Sequoia. It's a beautiful specimen. It's um, four feet wide at the base, maybe 
certainly over 100 years old. Osage orange trees can grow up to 50 feet. The crown, a maze of zigzag branches covered in sharp spines. It's a gangly tree. Just look at how the branches cross one another. Osage orange trees were once planted by American settlers to create impenetrable thickets to protect crops and livestock. In the 1850s, there was an educator in Illinois who promoted Osage orange or Bodark fencing uh, for farms because the boys were unable to go to school because they had to stay with the herds. And so in the Midwest, in, in the 1850s, if you purchased land, you didn't have fencing. And the cost of fencing was three times the cost of the land itself. So Osage Orange served as the, the hedge from um, Louisiana to New York uh, to the Western prairies until barbed wire was first patented. The barbed wire that we've all tripped over in the woods was patented in, in 1873. And by the eight, late 1870s and 1880s, it replaced the Osage Orange for fencing. And prior to Anglo settlement, the indigenous Osage treasured the wood. The tree named after the tribe, Foster says... Yes, the Osage used this tree for making bows. The wood is uh, incredibly uh, flexible, has a high tensile strength. It's a really hard wood and very heavy, takes on a high polish, and it's also yellow. So the name Bodark means bow wood. These bodark trees can easily be identified by their beautiful bark, reminiscent of woven basketry. Almost abstract in, in its patterns. It just doesn't have a, a normal, predictable tree bark pattern, but that also makes it instantly identifiable. And always, if you look at the base of the tree, where uh, part of the, the outer bark has uh, fallen off or been knocked off, there's always orange color. So the wood itself and the, and the root bark is uh, bright orange yellow. Osage orange trees were first scientifically documented, Foster says, during the Louisiana Purchase by explorers. From Natchez, Mississippi, up the Washita River. And that's where the first description of this tree comes from is the notes of William Dunbar in January of 1804. And in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, he describes the tree. He describes the fact that it is used by indigenous groups for making bows. And uh, in fact, uh, the Spiro uh, Indian group in Oklahoma is said to have traded uh, the wood throughout the Plains states from Oklahoma to the Rocky Mountains. Once a common indigenous commodity, Osage Orange remains a rare, valuable wood, Foster says, today marketed on socials. So there's a modern subculture of bow carving out of Osage Orange wood. 
But when uh, Dunbar first described the tree, it was only known from the Red River and the Washita drainages in Oklahoma, Texas, and adjacent Arkansas. So the tree itself had become restricted to a very narrow range. The Osage orange, Maclura pomifera, is a member of the mulberry family. In spring, the trees sprout tiny green flowers, which grow into massive fruit. They're big. And, you know, what child who's grown up in the rural Ozarks has not played with the Osage orange fruits in the fall because they fall on the ground and nothing eats them. Why does nothing eat Osage orange? Well, it's because the animals that co-evolved with the Osage orange are no longer with us. Megafauna, the large mammals of North America, a uh, uh, two-ton giant ground sloth or a mastodon, they ate the fruits and dispersed the seeds. But starting 130 centuries ago, megafauna became extinct due to climate change, warming conditions. About 13,000 years ago, toward the end of Pleistocene glaciation, Uh, there was no seed dispersal mechanism for these giant fruits, and none of the animals that exist today eat them. Now, squirrels will eat the seeds, uh, but they won't eat the fruit itself. And there's about 44 insect species that are known to eat the fruits. But, you know, these giant fruits that look like they should be our main source of food supply in the Ozarks, a single tree can produce a thousand pounds of fruits. Foster breaks open a washed Osage orange fruit, also called hedge apples, to sample. It doesn't smell edible, it doesn't look edible. Uh, A a botanist at Kew Gardens presented a specimen uh, to Queen Elizabeth in England, and she took a bite of it. Foster takes a bite. Mm, Tastes good enough for royals. He's lying. The fruit tastes weird. The musty flavor lasts. Ugh. Foster does set the record straight on the persistent rumor that Osage orange fruits ward off invasive bugs. There's been a lot of uh, speculation about possible insecticidal activity. Uh, And this is actually part of American folklore that comes to us from the 1950s. There was an article in the Tuscaloosa News in 1950 that reported that a uh, chemist at the University of Alabama was uh, uh, studying the possible insecticidal components of the Osage orange fruit. And this was picked up by other newspapers and wire services and uh, ended up creating this oral folklore that Osage orange fruits are uh, insecticidal. Uh, One professor quipped that the only way to kill a cockroach with an Osage orange fruit is to 
drop the fruit directly on the, on the cockroach. While their ecological range has greatly diminished over millennia, the decay and termite-resistant Osage orange are not endangered or even at risk, Foster says, offering certain assurance that this prehistoric tree will likely endure our looming Anthropocene epoch. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Best-selling author, photographer, consultant, and herbalist Stephen Foster has written 18 books including Peterson's Guide to Medicinal Plants and Herbs. You can see a slideshow featuring Stephen Foster posing near the Mount Sequoia Osage Orange Tree at OzarksAtLarge.com. And Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich says thanks to Rick Wimpy, a volunteer tree trimmer on Mount Sequoia, for identifying the location of this megafauna snack tree for our report. And we say thank you to you for listening to and supporting us. This is our season of giving fundraising week at KUAF. As we get closer to the end of 2021, we remind you a big reason we've been able to keep bringing you public radio is you. Listener support continues to be the biggest source of income to pay for shows like Ozarks at Large, All Things Considered, Fresh Air, and the NPR Newscast. And so many of you are sustaining members of KUAF Now, listeners who set aside a specific amount of support through bank drafts, debit or credit cards, or payroll deduction each month. And that helps us bring you the facts about the economy, policy, the pandemic, or Osage Orange Trees each day. Thank you for your continued support. Still to come this hour, we go back to December 1968 with archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. At that time, Arkansas faced a severe economic crisis. Newly elected President Nixon was tasked with working with Democrats in Congress, and brand new technology would make sending telegrams faster. Our trip, 54 years in the making, just ahead. When you give money to KUAF, you're helping us cover the cost of the programs you listen to, but you're also doing something bigger. The money you give strengthens our editorial independence. Think about it. If we were fully funded by the government, you can imagine the strings that would come with that funding, no matter who's in control. Well, you don't have to imagine what we'd sound like if we were fully funded by corporations. That's commercial radio. It can be a great service for the people who listen to it, but the ultimate purpose of commercial radio is to make money for its shareholders. Our ultimate purpose is to serve our listeners, and that's because the biggest share of our support comes from them, and we hope you. You can give right now at supportkuaf.com. You pick the amount. You pick the method. We'd love to hear from you as 2021 ends, and this is our season of giving fundraiser. You can go right now to support KUAF.com. The Northwest Arkansas Conservatory of Classical Ballet presents the ninth annual production of The Nutcracker at Erand Arts Center in Bentonville, Friday and Saturday, December 17th and 18th at 7.30 p.m. This production and holiday classic will feature special guests from the Northwest Arkansas Ballet Theater. NWABallet.com for tickets and information. This is Ozarks at Large. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Welcome back. Thank you very much, Kyle. We're going to go back in time. Time capsule again. I love it. Yes. Uh, December of 1968, 53 years ago. And I have to admit, when you first sent me the topic this yes. week, I just instantly thought, oh, you meant December 1969, because that's when the Arkansas-Texas game was in Fayetteville, and that's when Dixie was not going to be played anymore by the band. Right. And and there were civil rights demonstrations 
in Arkansas. But no, 68. 68. Also a we, tumultuous year. Right. And we may do 69 uh, soon. Sure. <laughs> sure. But uh, just to kind of set things up, uh, Richard Nixon had just been elected president in November. Uh, Winthrop Rockefeller was our governor. And uh, Fulbright and McClellan were our U.S. senators. So Arkansas had gone Republican for the governor's mansion, gone Democratic for the U.S. Senate. And I believe George Wallace actually carried the state in the presidential election. I believe he did, yeah. yeah. So it was a really across-the-board, weird electoral election year in Arkansas. Yeah, it was. By the way, did you know, you know the number one song? In December 1968? Yes. I don't. Ah, heard it through the grapevine. The Marvin Gaye version. The, yes. So let's talk about politics. Right, because we're just out of an election. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, the powerhouse congressman, Wilbur Mills, who was considered probably the most powerful, one of the most powerful men in Washington. Head of the House Ways and Means Committee. That's right. And so he was interviewed uh, by KATV about the newly elected President Nixon. Uh, most anyone elected President of the United States in the early stages of his uh, tenure in office, uh, certainly the first months of the first year he's in, uh, uh, enjoys uh, with a Congress uh, what uh, many people have referred to as a honeymoon. Uh, that honeymoon period can be longer for some presidents and has been longer for some uh, than for others. Now, I'm thoroughly convinced that President-elect Nixon is going into office recognizing uh, the different situation that he faces from that which most presidents in the past have faced. Uh, he's the first president that I recall, uh, in, uh, certainly in many years, who has had to deal initially in the first days he's been in office or will be in office with a Congress-controlled uh, by uh, the uh, opposite party. I, I listen to that there, and it seems compared to 2021 so measured. Here was this Democrat talking about Richard Nixon. Of course, he's saying he, who knows how long the honeymoon period is, but it sounded less vitriolic than what you might hear someone from an opposite party oh, say today? now. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And this was a... This was a tense time in American history. Uh-huh. It was. You know, the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. and um, now there was a Democratic Congress. So that that added right. some dimension uh, to the political uh, temperature. Yes. Um, but uh, Senator John McClellan uh, addressed the, the new Congress. Well, this being a new session of Congress, a new Congress— the first order of business, of course, will be to organize the Congress, to organize the two separate branches, the House and the Senate, by uh, making committee assignments and the routine work that has to be done in order to get a new Congress organized, swearing in the new members and getting them assigned and so forth. Senator, do you expect this to be a more conservative Congress than the last as far as the Senate is concerned? Well, I think it will be a bit more conservative. It, uh, uh, indications are that it will be. I think we'll have a president that's a little more conservative, and his leadership would tend to move it over in that direction. Uh, 
Uh, what about our anti-gun legislation such as the Dodd bill? Will that be staring us in the face again? I'm quite sure it will. There'll be much uh, new crime legislation introduced. I anticipate at least uh, two dozen bills introduced in the Senate and even maybe more than that. The whole country's crime conscience, they realize that we, and so is the Congress, we all realize that the crime menace is the greatest threat to our internal security today. It must be dealt with. We must find a way to deal with it effectively. We cannot tolerate the present rate of increase. If it continues unabated as it is, it'll destroy our society. Now, speaking of just elected, this next voice we hear had just been elected. Uh, Winthrop Rockefeller. Yes. Yes. And he is uh, talking about a new budget he is going to propose to the legislature for the next year. I intend to, to, to justify this request to the plainest possible terms. I'm not here with hat in hand. I'm here to state facts gathered in the most exhaustive, careful review of our state's financial needs in history. I believe that you will hear me objectively. Give this program your most careful attention. We we agree, I believe, that our state is in the crisis phase of financial problems because it is growing larger. As demands for more services grow without corresponding adjustments in revenue to pay for our services. Arkansas was in some serious financial straits, if you listen to Governor Rockefeller. That's right. And it, and it only got worse in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, with, you know, inflation and gas shortages and problems like that. Um, this next I love this next clip, um, and it shows a sign of the, of the times, but this is Jerry Jewell, who was uh, president of the NAACP, uh, later to become uh, a state senator, but he's talking about um, the need for black history to be taught in public schools. Too long the Negro has been left out of American textbooks. Too long the Negro has been deprived of really his heritage. And uh, we think that uh, now is the time for Arkansas, all of Arkansas, mind you, to take a part and to begin anew by the inclusion of Negro and to let the, the world know, or the Arkansas citizens know, that the Negro has a heritage, uh, that we have a stake in the society, that we have contributed to it positively, and that we should uh, have an opportunity to partic uh, participate or partake of the uh, advantages that now exist here in our state. Dr. Jewell, would you say that your proposal will be accepted by many of the school educators around the state? Well, I don't know. Hopefully that it will be. Uh, many other states, in the South for that matter, uh, neighboring states, or what we call borderline states, have uh, taken a positive step, at least one positive step. I would hope that our state education department, under the direction of Mr. Arch Ford, uh, would uh, say to all the districts that uh, let us now start teaching uh, black history in our schools as a required subject. You listen to Jerry Jewell there talk about that, and you think about the conversations that are happening now about how you teach history and what is the role of explaining the United States history with racism and slavery. There That's are some right. echoes there. Yeah, yeah, there are. And, you know, he ended up uh, being the first African-American uh, Senate pro tem. Um, right. And the, 
I don't know if you remember, but in, there was some controversy about that in uh, January of 93 when Bill Clinton was in Washington for the inauguration. Jim Guy Tucker was governor, and he left the state. So for four days, uh, Jerry Jewell was governor. Right. And he pardoned and commuted several uh, inmate sentences with a lot of controversy. One of them was the son of uh, the political activist uh, Robert Say McIntosh. Exactly. And his son was serving a 50-year sentence for uh, selling cocaine, and he pardoned him. Because as governor— you he can. can. He can do that. Yeah. And he did. And a lot of people say that that's why he lost his seat the next election. Yeah. Because yeah, of that I do controversy. That. Yeah. So let's move on, shall yes. we? Yes. You, you remember telegrams? I do. I do. Yes. I never sent one. I never did either. I, I never received one. I didn't either. But I'm sure my parents did. But this is this really shows a sign of the times that uh, this is a report on the technological advances uh, in that industry. Changes in the American way of life have been phenomenal in the past 25 years, and American business has had to keep pace with these changing times. One business that has undergone tremendous change in the past quarter of a century is Western Union. There's been significant changes in the way messages have been sent since the first messages were sent by Morse code. Today, messages are sent in just a fraction of a time that it used to take to send those same messages. We talked with the manager of the Little Rock Western Union office, Harold Baker, and the regional communications representative, Ron Broadway, about these changes. The primary changes have been made in the uh, transmission of telegrams from 25 years ago due to the old Morse which was 30 words a minute. It now works into automatic reperforator centers, which can go as high as five, four, five, and 600 words per minute in automatic transmission, which actually can transmit a message from Little Rock to New York in just a matter of minutes. Mr. Broadway, I understand there's quite a diversification in Western Union's operations. Can you explain what else besides transmitting messages the company is involved with? Yes, sir. As a matter of fact, uh, November the 1st of this year, we will be offering a new service called Broadband Exchange or Broadband Switching. This will permit customers in the Little Rock area to take advantage of high-speed data transmission facilities along with voice communications and facsimile. For example, a customer could take a document, a drawing, and transmitted eight and a half by 11 between Little Rock and Los Angeles in about three and a half minutes. This is the newest thing that we have going here in Little Rock. Information is a vital cog in the progress of our society. And at Western Union, the progress of information is their best and only product. This is Bob Gilmartin at the Western Union in Little Rock. So we're talking about technological advances for telegrams. Of course, telegrams, the last telegram sent by Western Union, I looked this up in preparation yeah. for our conversation, was 2006. Really? That was the last one sent. They were waning, obviously. The last one sent anywhere in the world was in 2014. There was still a service in India that sent, but they stopped in the summer of 2014. Wow. Yeah. That's now defunct. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I'm sure there are generations, you know, because the old joke was you'd recite a sentence, stop. Stop. 
because instead of a period, mm-hmm. there's probably a whole generation of people that don't never, understand what that means. Yeah, I've yeah. never heard of that. Yeah. Um, here's a random news story. Yeah. Uh, but I just found it really interesting because um, I had never seen anything like this before. But there was a bank robbery in uh, the the Benton State Bank, and um, they actually interviewed a teller who was obviously shaken by by the whole event. Yeah. And uh, here's what she described about what happened in the robbery. Well, these, the two men just came in, and I was in the vault, and I heard the men say, don't touch anything, don't push any alarms, this is a robbery. And then I started out of the vault, and one man took me back in the vault, and he told me to look at the floor, and I did. And I heard them putting the money in the sack that we had at the counter, and then this other man came in the vault, and he asked me if the safe was locked and if I could open it, and I did. And he told me to turn and face the corner. And uh, he took all the money and took it out behind the counter. He put that in the sack. And then they, in the meantime, some people had come in and he would bring them in the vault. And two men came in and he had them lay down on the floor. And he was wanted everyone, you know, to turn away from them and not look at them. But they they didn't have any kind of mask or anything over their face. And they both had guns. And uh, they threatened your lives. Uh, well, when they left, the man, he closed the vault door and he said that they were going to stay around here for a while and if they heard the alarm go off, they would come back and kill all of us. And the guys weren't even wearing masks. That's what kills me. Do we know, do you know by any chance the the, the end of this story? Were they caught? No, were but they? I'm sure they okay. were caught. They're, Bank robbery, to me, has always seemed like such a stupid crime. Right, because I'd, I'd say the majority... I would of say them that. are caught within movies, notwithstanding. Right. Right. Yeah. right. yeah. All right. All right. So there are certain stories that you do every year at at a certain time. Right. Right. Well, during December, you always do the holiday travel story. Of course. Yeah. We're still doing those. Oh gosh. Yes. Yeah. yeah they're ones that come around. They're yeah. just an annual event. Yeah. And you just. You just. Do it. Yeah. But uh, here's here's one from KTV that uh, they talked to Ben Miller of the Arkansas State Police. As of this morning, 694 people have died on Arkansas highways as compared to 640 on the same date last year. Of course, you know this is well above the record of 674 that was killed in 1966. Well, with New Year's coming up and this weekend, too, uh, what are you going to do about it, Bill? We have canceled all leave for our state patrolmen, as well as for our driver examiners and for our motor vehicle inspection people. This will give us additional people out on the highway. Will they be out this weekend and the New Year's too? Yes, they'll be out all this weekend and uh, New Year's Eve. We'll have about 30 additional cars on the highway uh, that we ordinarily don't have out there. We're taking a trip through December 1968 with archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. These are from KATV newscasts that are sent to Pennsylvania to be digitized, and they're put on, once they're ready, they're put on the website yes. at uh, the Pryor Center's we website. We have the earliest ones yeah. on the website right now in a searchable format. You yeah. can just Google Pryor Center and go to the KATV section and just... Search through and go down a rabbit hole. And eventually all of these will be there. Yes. Searchable.
Yes. You've got one more uh, stop for us on this <laughs> yes. tour. Yes. Uh, it's kind of a given beauty pageants in Arkansas. And so uh, this was the uh, Arkansas Junior Miss pageant. And uh, Jim Pitcock, the news director, was interviewing uh, the new Arkansas Junior Miss Ann Landis of Magnolia. And how does it feel to be Arkansas's Junior Miss? Right now, I'm still in a daze, more or less. It's unreal, really. Great, but unreal. What does it mean to you to be Arkansas's Junior Miss? Well, it means a lot of responsibility. It means that I'm going to have to live up to a lot, and I'm going to have to be the representative for all the other 59 girls who are here and who are so great, and I hope I can live up to the great expectations of them. So uh, next week, yes. you want to fast forward and do December of maybe 75? Sure. Sure. Okay. I'm trying to think, what was going on in December 1975? Well, we'll, we'll find have out. to see. <laughs> Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Just put Pryor Center into a search engine. You'll find so much. Randy, thanks so much. Thank you. I'll see you next week. Number one song on the Billboard charts in December 1968. I heard it through the grapevine, Marvin Gaye. This is your public radio station, KUAF, in December 2021. It is the season of giving fundraiser at KUAF. We're taking just a few minutes here before the end of 2021 to remind you how we can be so confident we'll be here with you in 2022. And that's through support from listeners just like you. Listener support remains the biggest slice of income this station has to bring you programs like Morning Edition, Fresh Air, and Science Friday. You listen to KUAF more than any other station, I bet. And you rely on KUAF's programming to remain informed, connected, and receive enjoyment out of your listening. And you understand how public radio is funded. Listener dollars pay for the majority of what you're listening to. And if you're capable of donating to KUAF, and you understand that your gift is an investment in the future of KUAF and the future of your listening enjoyment and the future of listening education for your entire community, well, then you're ready to go to supportkuaf.com and make a contribution. You listen, you rely, you understand, you're capable, you're ready to become a supporter of KUAF. It takes no more than two minutes at supportkuaf.com, and thank you. When was the last time someone said to you, I was listening to NPR and I heard... Maybe you even catch yourself saying it to others. Hi, this is Rob Stein from NPR Science Desk. There are so many fascinating and surprising insights on KUAF, it's natural they would want to share them. So go ahead, spread the news. And the next time you tell someone, hey, I heard on KUAF, make sure to mention you're a contributor to KUAF. And if you're not, you can become one right now. Just go to supportkuaf.com. One of the great things about supporting KUAF, well, there's several. One, you know that you're doing your part to support your listening enjoyment. Two, we let you decide how much to give. No gift is too small or too large. And we also let you decide when to give and how often to give. 
But we do set a couple of weeks aside each year to make it incredibly easy for you to give, and this is one of them. It's our Season of Giving year-end fundraising week at KUAF. And to make a contribution in the amount of your choice, you can go right now to supportkuaf.com. And you'll know with your support, put together with the support of thousands of other listeners, we'll be able to bring you here and now all things considered Shades of Jazz, The Pick and Post, and Ozarks at Large throughout 2022. To everyone who's given so far in 2021, thank you very much. If you're about to give, we appreciate it. You can do so right now at supportkuaf.com. Thank you. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Walmart Amp presents Chicago with Brian Wilson in concert June 21st, 2022. This will be Brian Wilson's first appearance at the Amp as the co-founder of the Beach Boys joins up on tour with the horns and vocals of classic rock band Chicago. Tickets on sale Friday at 11 a.m., 479-443-5600 or amptickets.com. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Charleston. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Today's show produced by Timothy Dennis. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich and Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Additional content today came from KUAR, Public Radio in Little Rock and Central Arkansas. You can listen to past editions of Ozarks at Large. They're archived at ozarksatlarge.com. You can always hear the most recent edition of our daily show easily by just asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. And you can listen to us anytime, anywhere, if you subscribe to our free podcast that's available through all major podcast distributors. Thank you again for your continued support of Ozarks at Large, KUAF, and Public Radio. You can... uh, Join us as a supporter of public radio by going to supportkuaf.com, and thank you. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellams. Have a great rest of your day.